this is Corey, writer and producer of the Who Killed My Mother podcast. Before you jump into this episode, I just wanted to remind you that if you visit whokilledmymother.com forward slash newsletter, you can join my mailing list. When you do, I'll send you bonus audio episodes, the autopsy report, and other freebies just for being a listener of the show. I promise it's really free and I'll never do anything weird like sell your email for Starbucks points, so check it out if free stuff is your thing. And don't forget that there are also links to three free books in the show notes of this episode, so be sure to grab those too. And even if free stuff isn't your thing, I want to thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Imagine wide boulevards empty. Birds, if there are still birds, will darken the sky. They will be the ones who remember our songs, our stories. When the world has ended, when the world has moved on, what will be left of us? From the poem Cloudgate, written by me, K.B. Marie. And this is the true story of who killed my mother. I can't bear to wait anymore. I decide to call Detective Barnes myself and ask for the results of the autopsy. As the phone rings, seemingly for an eternity, my heart starts pounding. My palms are sweating. I want him to answer and tell me it's a mistake. I want him to say that my mother's death was something simple, COVID-19 or a heart attack or anything but a tragic end to my mother's tragic life. Anything but one of these awful scenarios I keep concocting in my dark mind. I'm praying, not for the last time, that my uncle is innocent. Despite the evidence, it isn't like my uncle is incapable of kindness. Sometimes when my mother's delusions were particularly intense, and she would spin lies for hours, he would sit with her, listen to her, show her tremendous patience in the face of her maddening psychosis. Once, when my grandfather wrongfully blamed me for breaking a window in the garage, slapped me hard across my face for asserting that I didn't do it, it was Joe who stopped him. Joe who stopped the second slap from coming down. Joe, whose face had pinched, pained and embarrassed on my behalf, putting himself between me and the hand. And another time when he, my mother and grandmother and I had gotten lost on the back roads of Missouri, and the whole car devolved into the chaos of frustration as the gas tank whittled its way toward empty. He saw that I was upset by the shouting and the arguing and pulled the van over to the side of the road until everyone cooled off. He picked wildflowers with me, putting into my hands a beautiful bouquet of purple blooms. He could be a kind man or a very dangerous man. I just don't know which one was with my mother the night she died. I may never know. The ringing stops. A voice says, Detective Barnes? Hi, it's me, Corey, Letha's daughter. Um, I'm sorry to bother you. I'm sure you're really busy, but I was just hoping maybe you have my mother's autopsy results. Oh, hi, Corey. Yes, I was just about to call you. I finally have the detective on the phone and I can barely hear him. Pounding in my ears drowns out his words. 
My heart is that crazy little drummer kid from all the Christmas songs, a rup-a-pum bumming along. I'm sorry, I tell the detective. Can you say that again? Yes, we didn't find anything. The world stops. Uh, what do you mean you didn't find anything? There's no damage to the body, ma'am. Well, she has a scratch on her right arm, but it isn't considerable. Maybe he pushed her down or something like that. There's a few bruises, but they're different colors, and it's hard to tell how old bruises are. And there's a place on her scalp that was bleeding underneath, but that could have happened if she'd collapsed. There's not yet anything that points to a clear cause of death. A wave of relief washes through me. I didn't realize until this moment how afraid I'd been that he had beaten her to death. That when he had said the condition of her body, he was talking about black and blue and swelling and that her final moments were full of terror and pain. But that isn't what happened. Joe didn't use his fists and for some reason, I'm comforted by this. So, it wasn't a violent death, I ask. The detective sounds like a good guy. At the very least, he's incredibly patient with me. No, ma'am, there's nothing to suggest that he strangled her or hit her or anything like that. It's hard to even say if there was a struggle that could have caused those or if she had just collapsed. My mother and I are the same in that we perpetually mismeasure doorways with our eyes. All my life, she's clipped frames with an elbow or shoulder and would have a bruise dark enough that you would have believed someone had taken a bat to her. The detective goes on. The x-ray found no evidence of an air bubble. There were no needle marks anywhere on her body. I stop him here. There's no needle marks at all. No, ma'am. Of course, it's possible that they missed something small, like a tiny puncture between the toes. But he assures me that they checked everywhere and that they were very thorough. If there are no track marks, it eliminates the possibility that she was a secret heroin addict all this time. And it makes me believe my mom even more, that she was telling me the truth about being clean. I remind the detective of this. You didn't see any track marks on her body. No, ma'am. Well, then you know that she wasn't doing heroin. He lied when he said that she was doing heroin. Yes, ma'am, that seems so. So do you think he gave her drugs or poisoned her or... Unfortunately, we won't know until the talk screen comes back. How long will that take? I ask. At least eight weeks. But he's wrong about this. It will take over 14 weeks for me to find out what's on the toxicology report. And I am dreading the wait. How do I endure months of not knowing whether he killed her? And the fact that the report could come back, and I still might not know conclusively what happened. I realize instantly that if there's no proof on her body that he killed her, the only thing keeping Joe in jail is the warrant. What will happen to Joe? I ask. Yes, ma'am, when we arrested him, we found heroin and meth inside his body. Inside his body, Katie would later repeat back to me. He's a dude, so we're talking about the butt, right? Never one to mince words, my friend Katie. The fact that Joe was arrested with heroin and meth, quote, inside his body, and that my mother had not so much as a single puncture wound tells me that his story about her breaking into his safe and stealing his heroin is bogus. It's a lie. And he knew it was a lie. But why tell it? People tell lies for a reason, so why tell this one? 
Why insist that it was heroin when it could have been any drug in his safe? He had at least heroin and meth, and my mother's prescriptions and probably others. He could have told them anything. He could have told them she took meth, that she took too many pills, but he had said heroin. Why had he insisted that it was the least likely drug of all? Unless he knew what the talk screen would say. Unless he knew, because he'd given it to her. If it comes back that she has heroin in her system, I tell the detective, you know this means he used it to kill her. He was the user with the track marks. He was the user, not her. Detective Barnes placates me with a respectful, yes, ma'am. The fact that there's no fatal damage to her body tells me that Joe didn't lose control of himself. It wasn't like he lost his patience and struck her. This isn't the ashtray incident of 2005. If he killed her, it was a calculated decision. Maybe even one he planned in advance. I remind the detective about the insurance policy. Tell him again. On the morning he called to tell me she was dead, he asked me if there was an insurance policy on her, and he said that it was $50,000 that you could take out on someone without them even knowing, and I thought this was just such a specific amount of money. Just please make sure that you check on that, okay? Just look and see if there's a policy. I'm sure I sound super annoying to this poor guy who's just trying to do his job. Yes, ma'am, I'll check on that. Good, I think. Because if there is a policy and Joe is named as the beneficiary, that would explain a lot of things. Of course, there might not be a policy. And if there isn't, there's still my grandmother's house. Zillow says her house is worth $283,000. And the Nashville real estate market is booming. When I check Joe's booking that afternoon, I see that he has a court date for August 5th. There's the strangulation charge and the $25,000 bond and two new drug charges. I wonder how much time he'll get for the drug charges or the strangulation. Honestly, I'm not confident that he'll stay in jail long, given his track record. Why don't you think the drug charges will stick? My wife asks me when I fill her in on the autopsy report and the long, uncertain wait stretching before me. Has he gotten out of jail time before? Yes, I laugh. A lot. When I look more closely at his booking, I see the three pending charges, the outstanding strangulation charge and the two drug charges. The first is called contraband in a penal institution, intoxicant slash contraband substance. This is listed as a felony. The second is called a contraband substance possession or casual exchange, which is listed as a misdemeanor. Between the heroin and meth, I don't know which is a felony and which is a misdemeanor. So who knows what the authorities think is worse. I don't stop at the recent charges, though. I go through the archives as well. Including the three new pending offenses, I find that my uncle has 117 charges in Davidson County alone. 117. It seems his extensive life of crime began, on record anyway, in 1987, when he was found guilty of burglary forced entry of a non-residential property. He would have been 19 at the time, but he certainly hasn't slowed down between then and now. Of the 117 charges, several of them have the same dates and judge, so I'm assuming that maybe they were incidents that occurred at the same time. Regardless, the arrest record is 32 pages long when I print it from my computer, and as I comb the information, trying to decipher and organize it, 
one thing becomes abundantly clear. My Uncle Joe is a lucky guy. Outright, over 60 of the charges have been dismissed, retired, closed, or nolly prosequed, which, turns out, is a fancy way of saying the court decided to abandon the case. The times where he was found guilty of a crime, in nearly every instance, the worse offense was dismissed and substituted for a lesser charge. For example, in April 2001, when he attempted to choke me, he was charged with domestic violence assault with bodily injury. But this was thrown out, and he was convicted instead of harassment. This misdemeanor came with a sentence of 11 months and 29 days in jail. Did he go to jail? Not for long. Only for 30 days. The rest of his sentence was suspended. That is the pattern I see over and over again in his record. Dismissed or reduced crime. Suspended or shortened sentence. November 1995. Assault bodily injury dismissed. June 1997, aggravated assault intentionally knowingly, nolle prosequi. June 1997, aggravated assault intentionally knowingly, nolle prosequi. March 1999, assault aggravated intentionally knowingly, dismissed. February 2006, assault domestic bodily injury, dismissed. June 2007, assault domestic bodily injury, dismissed. May 2016, assault, domestic bodily injury, dismissed. A few times, the system half-heartedly pursued justice. In September of 2004, he was convicted guilty after trial of assault, domestic bodily injury, and sentenced nine months, though he only served 90 days. In August 2015, he was convicted of assault, domestic bodily injury for the second time, but this 11-month, 29-day sentence was suspended all but 60 days. He was convicted of assault domestic bodily injury for a third time and given another nine months in May 2017. Do I even need to tell you that this nine-month sentence was suspended in lieu of probation? Assuming I'm reading this record correctly, and it's a shame they don't teach us how to read criminal records in school, I can find only one exception to this pattern where the felony charge stuck. In October of 2008, he was convicted of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, intentionally, knowingly. He was sentenced to four years in the Davidson County Sheriff's facility. However, there is a yes, besides suspended, so we might assume that he was only given supervised probation for these four years and never actually served any jail time. These are only the assault charges. Over the years, he's also been charged with theft, burglary, robbery, and carjacking. There were DUIs in August of 1993, February 1995, June 1995, September 1998, and July of 1998. Public intoxication in 2003, criminal impersonation in July 2001 and November 2007. He's also been charged with contributing to the delinquency of a minor, child abuse, child endangerment, disturbing the peace, disorderly conduct, stalking, and harassment. His favorite crimes, or at least the crimes he's repeated the most, is driving on a revoked or suspended license, criminal trespassing, evading or resisting arrest, and leaving the scene of an accident, with or without injured persons present. Evading arrest is something I think he's particularly good at. He's an expert at disappearing before the police show up. He disappeared when he bashed my mother's head in with the ashtray and again when he strangled her, so that both times the police came to the house took reports, 
but had no one to arrest. I don't bother counting up all the drug charges. Possession, possession with intent to sell, contraband in a penal institution, legend drug possession, and habitual offender charges. These drug charges paint a more complete picture of his chronic addiction problems, but it doesn't tell me if he's capable of murder. It does, however, suggest that he might not have any reason to fear consequences for his actions. Why would he? If every time he was up for a felony charge, it was reduced to a misdemeanor or dropped altogether. If every time the penalty was to go to jail for years, but instead he got probation, how in the world would he have thought his actions would have consequences? And given the overlapping of these charges, he must have defaulted on his probation so many times. Is there no penalty for violating probation? If there is, why were they so willing to cut him slack? Because he's white? Is he a narc for their drug department? Or could he really be so charismatic in a courtroom? My uncle would have learned the value of such a charismatic facade at my grandmother's knee. As a traveling pastor, she taught him to present himself as a good Christian man, how to say all of the right things whenever the situation called for it. It didn't matter if his actions didn't support these ideologies. But frankly, this is typical behavior for a sociopath. Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, was a regular churchgoer, and he murdered 49 women in Washington State in the 80s and 90s. Peter Sutcliffe, apprehended in 1981 for the murder of 13 women, and for trying to murder seven others, claimed that the voice of God had instructed him to kill these women, and that he was on a mission from God to do this work. Had my Uncle Joe stood in front of judge after judge and painted himself as a harmless addict with a problem? A misunderstood but ultimately good Christian man? Let's say we overlook the drug charges altogether. Personally, I have issues with the criminalization of drugs anyway. I think it only upholds the school-to-prison pipeline used to incarcerate and enslave black Americans. And there are good people who suffer from addiction, for reasons I'll outline later. I don't understand why no one took the rest of his history seriously. How in the world can a system expect a man like him to stop putting his hands on people, to stop hurting people, when he receives little to no consequences for repeatedly doing so? Notably, there was no arrest record for the ashtray incident in 2005. I'm sorry, but if a man fractures someone's skull and causes internal brain bleeding so bad that an emergency surgery is needed to keep that blood from flooding the victim's brain and causing death, it merits some serious jail time. But there wasn't even a charge for this assault. I know that the police came to the house to investigate, that an ambulance was called to collect my mother's unconscious body. It wasn't like no one is informed that this happened. So why are there no charges pressed? Why did they leave the burden of defending herself to my mother? My mother, in the hospital, with 60-plus staples in the side of her head. She'd forgotten how to speak, how to walk. How exactly did anyone expect her to press charges? So yes, 117 offenses is a lot. But I know for a fact that these are only the ones that the system caught. Who knows how many others they missed. And let's not forget about the most recent and perhaps most telling act of violence against my mother, the February 2019 strangulation. Why does this event matter? Why does it stand out? A 2008 study published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine says that 43% of women who were murdered by domestic assault and 45% of victims of attempted murder had been strangled by their assailant within the year before. 
domestic violence strangulation has become such a significant predictor of attempted and successful murder that police departments across the country have begun to take it more seriously, upgrading the charge of strangulation to a felony. According to the Training Institute of Strangulation Prevention, even non-deadly strangulation shows that the assailant isn't against the idea of killing their victim. There's one fact about all of this that I find the most infuriating. Had the police committed to arresting and charging Joe with strangulation in February 2019, committed to having him serve the minimum two years for that charge, just that charge, without substituting for a shorter sentence or probation or dismissing it or anything like that, my uncle would have still been in jail come July 2020. And my mother might still be alive. Of course, I blame myself, too. I tell myself I'm as responsible for her death as anyone. There were things that I could have done and didn't. There's the most obvious. I chose to protect my hard-earned life, my marriage, my own mental health rather than move her in with me and assume full responsibility of her care. And the day I called the police to report that my mother was in the bathroom, terrified and strangled, is also the day I let Joe convince me it didn't happen. There were hours between the phone call and the gaslighting, of course. He had to evade the police, come back. But when he did, he had my mother call me. And in this call, he explained that I'd gotten it all wrong. That my mother, in the throes of her psychosis, had attacked him first. It didn't help that my mother no longer sounded cogent. She wasn't consumed by fear that had gripped her earlier in the day. Her focus was gone. To him, I said, she told me that you strangled her, expecting him to explain himself. But when he repeated this to her, she said, She's lying, Joe, she's lying, and began to cry. She spoke about my father, all the abuse she'd endured from him on my behalf. I went through hell for her, she tells him. I went through hell so she could have a dad. Joe says, Sissy, that happened a long time ago. But she doesn't seem to hear this. She's slipping away from us. And into the silence, Joe says, She isn't well, Corey. Surely you can hear that. He says, don't call the police no more. We handle our business in this family. And it isn't like I don't know my mother is far from innocent. She had put me through hell more times than I could count. When she was drunk, she could be mean, even violent. She would slap or kick or bite. And though she'd never hurt me, I'd been the witness to plenty of spats. Her first line of defense was usually a good shove, her way of telling someone to back off. And this was the mother he wanted me to remember. He was counting on 25 years of trauma conditioning to overshadow what was happening now. Joe wanted me to forget that now my mother was too sick for anything, that now my mother was no longer the feisty drunk of her 20s who could kick and scream if the police tried to shove her in the back of their car. By 2015, my mother was in her 50s, and the hepatitis C that she'd contracted decades before had left her body ravaged with chronic fatigue, muscle weakness, and constant nausea. She got winded easily, just walking down to the mailbox or taking her dogs outside. She didn't drink anymore, and she hadn't for years. And she was sick. She was so sick. But this is what he does, you see. Joe twists the story. He takes a litany of half-truths and turns them first in the light, 
then in the darkness until you can't be sure what you're looking at. For someone like me, who makes sense out of the insane world by clinging to facts like flotsam, it's a hell of a mind game. But now, with time and distance, the facts are clear. Keeping things in the family only ever serves to protect the abuser, never the abused. That's a fact. He's an abuser. That's a fact. He's much bigger than my mother, at least six or seven inches taller and far stronger. He doesn't have her health problems or her physical weakness. Those are facts. He could have pushed her back or restrained her for her safety. He could have tried talking to her or asking me to calm her down. He could have locked her in a room. He could have done anything. No matter how angry she might have made him, he could have tried a dozen different things in that moment to stop her from hitting him or hurting herself. I know because I've been him. I've had to make these choices. And yes, my mother could be as feisty as a banshee from hell, but I've never had to put my hands on her even when she was at her strongest. And if I could manage to control her at half of his size, then so could he. But he didn't. He strangled her. Intense and sustained compression of her throat until she had dark, visible bruising. The police saw this. They recorded it down. They had enough evidence to issue the warrant for his arrest. These are the facts. And I shouldn't have let him convince me otherwise. This episode of Who Killed My Mother was written and produced by me, Koi Marie. And the music was also written and produced by me. If you enjoy my storytelling, good news, there is a lot more of it out in the world. I have over 20 published books, including novels, illustrated poetry collections, and even this show is available as a memoir, to be enjoyed by yourself or by that friend who doesn't listen to podcasts. You can learn more about my work and all that I do by visiting whokilledmymother.com. If you want to do more, you can also support me on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash For just a few bucks a month, you'll get early access to my soon-to-be-released content, as well as exclusive content. Not to mention that your support lets me know you enjoy what I do and you want it to continue. And if you can't offer financial support at this time, that is okay. There is still so much you can do. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, or recommend the show to your friends. And I would be so grateful if you did. And last but not least, as always, thank you for listening.